Today in the owner suites, we're talking to an artist who's doing some extremely cutting edge stuff in the NFT space. And he's got a great perspective on where NFTs may be heading in the future. You've been invited to the owner suite, where we get down to business with the movers and shakers and trading cards, NFTs, rare collectibles, and other alternative assets. Click the subscribe button so you can keep coming back. Now welcome Jeff Wilson, the sports card investor. Hello, and welcome to the owner suite. I've got a great guest with me today, Blake Jamison. Now, many of you may know Blake's name because he was one of the Topps Project 2020 artists. But recently, he's been doing some absolutely fascinating art projects in the NFT space. But what he's learned takes you well beyond art. He has some ideas and perspective on where NFTs can go in the future and why they could become more and more valuable to society. He also has ideas for how NFTs can continue to remain strong and grow on the secondary market and not face a bubble that could eventually bring some NFT projects down in value. It's a great conversation full of entrepreneurial and business tidbits and wisdom. So sit back and enjoy my conversation with Blake Jamison. First, I wanted to remind you that this episode of The Owner Suite is brought to you by my growth agency, 352. At 352, Jeff and his team work with growth stage and enterprise companies to drive new revenue. They're experts at bringing your business to new customers and markets, building and launching digital products, and pioneering new ventures. Learn what they can do to grow your business by visiting growwith352.com. That's growwith352.com. 352, let's do what's next. Blake, welcome to the owner suite. Thank you, thanks for having me. Yeah, I'm, I'm really excited about this conversation because you in many ways have been really cutting edge within the sports card world last year. Now you're cutting edge within the NFT world. You're seeing a whole lot of things as somebody who's created sports cards and created NFTs and we're gonna get there but I first want uh, let the audience know a little bit kind of about how you got to this point. Where are you from? Where did you grow up? How did you get into art to begin with? All that type of thing. Of course. Uh, what's up, everyone? My name is Blake Jamison. I'm a full-time artist uh, currently living and working in Brooklyn, New York. I was born in San Francisco, California and grew up in Marin County in a very creative household. My parents always encouraged me to create and make art, and it always had been a hobby of mine. Uh, however, I decided not to go to art school and studied economics. And so I spent almost a decade after college working in digital marketing on behalf of brands. And so that allowed me to be somewhat creative with graphic design, video editing, and copywriting, helping brands tell their story on platforms like Facebook. Uh, on my 30th birthday, I decided to quit that kind of corporate, very corporate job and do something that I really enjoyed every single day. So I'd wake up excited and I'm happy to say, you know, six years later, I decided on my 30th birthday, I'm 36 now, uh, and it's been a really fun six years, uh, really cool journey. I have, because I have this kind of gap in my experience of going to art school, uh, I kind of make up for that with my marketing uh, background. And so I've applied a lot of the digital marketing and storytelling and community building principles that I used to do for clients and now applied it to my own art practice. And that's been... Uh, it's been a really fun journey for the last three years. 
I've been primarily focused on painting portraits of professional athletes. And so I've worked with athletes across pretty much every league, um, done 400 athletes roughly to date. And last year in 2020, I was uh, tapped by Tops to be part of the Project 2020 with 20 different artists creating baseball cards for them. Uh, with COVID and everything, that set took off in a way that none of us would have expected going into it. And that's actually, you know, that's why my second time back is today, because you and I got to have a nice conversation about that. And I really wanted to go back and watch that episode before we talk today. It's just been so busy. But um, it's funny because, and we'll get into this, but like the bubble that was happening in Tops is now happening in the crypto world. And now because of that, I'm going through it once. I'm, I feel like I'm prepared for it. Uh, and that's a good thing. So yeah, I'm uh, just excited to, you know, explore what possibilities NFTs can offer to artists and, and creatives and athletes. Uh, had a moderate success in the last few months uh, selling NFTs, both individually from just my own art archives, and then also partnering with different athletes to launch collections. And so I have a Terrell Owens collection that we launched uh, about a week ago. And Tim Thomas, the hockey goalie, coming up end of this week, early next week. So it's, it's exciting times, man. Yeah, there's a lot of fascinating stuff in there I want to dig into about how all of that works. Um, but you've got a real interesting story because you were living kind of the more traditional professional career life. As you said, at age 30, you made the leap into being an artist. And that's kind of the equivalent of somebody saying, you know, I've got a corporate job and now I'm going to leave my corporate job to to found a startup. Because in many ways, if you're an artist, I assume it's very much like being a startup founder or an entrepreneur. You got to figure out how to make it on your own. Absolutely. And I really, you know, I got to give credit where credit is due. I think that a lot of my success and ability to pivot from a stable career into essentially a startup with no real way or no real uh, understanding of like how the business would function yet at that time. I had a ton of support from family and friends. You know, I was 30 years old. I moved back home with my parents and, uh, you know, I, a, like my parents are awesome and super supportive of creativity and creative themselves. So like, that's cool. And also like, I'm humble enough to know like, okay, I'm, I'm changing careers at the age of 30. I need to make sure that my bills are as low as possible so that I can take everything that I make and reinvest it into like growing the business rather than paying for like food and shelter. So it was in part, I was able to do it because I had that kind of fallback. Uh, it would have been a lot different situation if I didn't, if I couldn't have moved back with my parents and had to keep paying uh, the mortgage on the house that I had uh, bought at the time. So just a lucky, lucky man. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, any, any it, you got to have that opportunity to take the leap and, 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 what so you had that support around you which was wonderful but was it still was it scary or was it a situation where you were just like no i'm so sure this is what i want to do I, i'm finding it exhilarating despite the risk yeah you know it always felt like i could go back to digital marketing if i had to and i still honestly i feel that now like all of the clients that i worked for uh, have great relationships with and like when i left that industry you know, there were a hand, the primary company that I was working for obviously was impacted the most, but also like I had done some, you know, I had freelance gigs here and there. So I think at any given time, like if I really needed to, you know, if my life situation changed and I needed more stability of income, I could always go back to that. And so because of that, 
it wasn't ever really frightening. It was always just exciting. And of course, you know, there's been a lot of speed bumps along the way, but that also was the same case with, you know, freelancing, you know, sometimes it would be slim pickings and I wouldn't have a lot of clients and it might be a little more challenging to, you know, make rent or my mortgage. So yeah, it's never, it, it hasn't really ever been scary. Uh, just fun. If somebody out there right now is in a corporate type job and is thinking about starting their own product, business, whatever it may be, uh, what would be your advice to them? Uh, if I could go back and do it differently, I would have spent at least like six to 12 months before I put in my notice working on my next business on every single available night and weekend that I possibly can. You know, I was casually painting on the weekend sometimes. Uh, I had purchased a house, so I was kind of remodeling that house, which was like, you know, kind of an art project for me, but like not an art project that was going to like turn into like any kind of credibility in the art world. It was just like being creative with my hands. So my advice would be, you know, cut back on Netflix and, you know, other like, you know, just kind of luxury time wasting activities and spend more of your free time around your job building as much as you can as far as like your runway so that when you finally quit your job, you're kind of already in motion with the new venture. Yeah, yeah, that's that's good advice. Establish it as a side hustle, get it going, and then uh, get a little bit of, you know, traction and then and then use that as an opportunity to make the leap. Um, I think that's I think that's pretty good advice. So here you are as a artist who has no formal art training, trying to cut your teeth and make it on your own. How do you go from that point to being able to, you know, paint all these pictures of all these like huge athletes uh, from around the world? Of course. So at first, and again, I was really only able to even do this approach because I had such a sweet setup with my parents and very low overhead. Uh, but I would paint things and I spent, you know, probably... I tried to get to my 10,000 hours of painting as fast as possible because I felt like at the time, the one thing that was holding me back was my ability with the brush or the can, spray can or whatever is, you know, I felt like I really had a pretty good handle on the marketing and comfortable, you know, creating content, whether it's being on video or graphic design flyers, but I really felt like I needed to step my art up. So for the first like six to eight months, I didn't, I painted every single day, like 10 hours a day, but I, would never sell it. And so I would post it online and people would say, hey, let me buy that. And I'd say, oh, I'm not quite ready to sell my work yet because I just wasn't conf confident there. And so what I did though, is I started keeping track of who those people were on, on a list. Uh, and then when I finally got to a point where I was ready to sell some art, those were the first people I reached out to. And the way that I did it is my art is kind of inspired by street art and graffiti. So I use these hand cut stencils, which take quite some time to cut the stencil but then once you have the stencil, you can paint it very pretty fast. And so I had a handful of stencils that I had cut over the last previous like six months or so, finally got to a point where I was comfortable trading my art for money. And so I basically allowed customers to choose from any, any past artwork that I had made. I'll make a new painting for them with that same stencil. Uh, charge 500 bucks. They were 16 by 20 canvases. I went out, I bought 10 of them and I had 10 blank canvases and I had this whole kind of post about, you know, I'm ready to sell some art. And so those sold out pretty fast uh, within about 24 hours, um, mostly to people who had already expressed interest. And so that was the first day I ever was sold any art. I made five grand. 
And so that definitely gave me a little confidence boost of like, okay, I think I can make this work. And I definitely, you know, I can't just go make five grand on a whim. That was really a lot of kind of preparation to get to that day. But that kind of thing showed me that this is, it's possible to sell my art, you know, trade my art for money to a bunch of people. In that case, it was 10 people. So uh, that was great. And then as a businessman, uh, I sold those 10 and then I started just kind of selling one or two here and there as people inquired. And pretty soon after that, I think maybe when I had sold 20 paintings, I went back and I looked deep dive into the data of who these people are that bought my work. Where, where do they live? What do they do? How old are they? Do they have kids? True to, kind of trying to define my ideal customer avatar. And so I found that almost all of them were working in some type of tech startup uh, marketing industry, which makes sense because that's the industry that I was coming from. And so it hit me that like, okay, well, what should I do to like market to these people and make this my niche? And I came up with the idea of primarily focusing on art for offices. And so when a company was maybe raised a series A round and they were moving from a co-working space into their own space and they want to put some cool art on the wall that kind of enhances this company culture and, and not just like, you know, something from Walmart. Uh, I was trying to be that guy. And because of that, also like that niche, I decided to focus on LinkedIn as far as my marketing platform primarily. So I was looking for facilities managers uh, or similar titles and connecting with those people. And then really focused on like just building relationships, never going for the sell fast, but just making sure that people, you know, I'm on their radar and I don't ever have to tell them like I'm the guy that makes art for offices because it's like it was my top of my LinkedIn bio. I make art for offices. And I did that for a while. And I think if I had still worked on that niche until today, I would be doing just fine. But it was a, a twist of fate brought me to Las Vegas. And I met this ex NFL player who now manage NFL athletes named Jared Faison. And he really liked my work and suggested that if I do a few paintings for his clients for free, he could get them to promote me and to their teammates. And that would help me sell some art. And so essentially, that's what we did. And it worked extremely well. And I think I like went home that day and like changed my LinkedIn bio to I make art for athletes and I haven't looked back since. <laughs> I make art for offices and athletes, right? <laughs> well, well, that's such a fascinating story. I mean, there's so many entrepreneurial nuggets in there. So, I mean, the first, the first takeaway that I just had from your story is that as an artist, you are very much an entrepreneur. You've got to think like a product manager managing your own product because there you were and of course i know your marketing background had to help with this there you are as you know figuring out like who's my target audience who's my target buyer how do i get to them how can i most appeal to them you know what's my platform i'm going to use to get to them you know with linkedin obviously and so you had to kind of figure out all of these marketing elements the same way that a product manager product marketer startup founder has to figure out with their product. So that's that's pretty fascinating. I don't know that a lot of people think of like an artist as an entrepreneur in that sense, but this, the whole side of being able to actually make a living off of it, uh, that's a very entrepreneurial endeavor, uh, very much like marketing your own business. And then, and then you had the unexpected pivot, you had the lucky thing happen and, and lucky things often happen in the entrepreneurial world because you put yourself out there and you, have lots of at bats, and you know if you're if you're meeting a lot of people, pursuing a lot of different angles, and then then you get your break, and people will say, well, that's a lucky break. Well, it is a lucky break, but it's a lucky break because you put yourself in many different positions for one of those connections to turn into something. And so um, I, it's it's fascinating how that all came together for you. Yeah, 
Yeah, man, it's it's great. It's uh, it's been a fun journey, and like it's it's cool too. Like every single like even like NFTs came out of nowhere to me. You know, I found out about them about a year ago, but like even at the time, I'm like, what? I don't get it. And then like January, I started really diving in and getting deep in it, and it's like. Like I said, like, you know, a year ago, I would have never thought like, oh man, I'm going to like partner with Terrell Owens on like a digital gallery with like, you know, half a dozen artists. Uh, it's just, it's crazy how fast things change. It is crazy how fast things change. Uh, it is. And it, it, we saw that incredible growth in the sports card world. Now we're seeing it in NFTs, other forms of alternative assets. I mean, you're seeing it across the board between comic books and sealed video games and ticket stubs and there's so many different types of types of alternative assets that people are jumping into nfts obviously being kind of the bold new frontier because it's digital uh so people aren't as used to that but uh you were you were part of one of those rapidly rising areas of of you know alternative assets and that was the tops project 2020 we 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 did a whole episode about that on our sports card investor channel where we talked about a year ago, uh, you know, when that was really heating up, um, and so I'm curious now, without going, you know, without going to the whole project and the background of it, because I think a lot of people are probably familiar. But now that you look back a year later, you know, what were kind of your main takeaways about how that had the crazy acceleration, but then also had some softening on the other side? What 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 does it all feel like now? Yeah, I mean, it's interesting. I think that like. You know, when I was in the bubble, it was harder to realize that it was happening. And that was like the kind of the crux of our conversation of, you know, you saying like, yeah, this isn't sustainable. People are losing their minds, right? With these card prices on the secondary market. And just as a recap for people, like my general principle, like I agreed with you, but I also thought that like something that was overlooked is, you know, these could be historic cards if the artist really pops off and also kind of made the suggestion and i've been saying this from the beginning is like i want people to buy my cards retail from tops i don't want people to go on have to go on ebay and spend 300 bucks for my jackie robinson card and i didn't then i i mean i like i did think the whole thing was going up to the moon and never stopping so like i wasn't discouraging that as much as i probably should have been but i was really trying to encourage people yo like buy the artists that you that you believe in long term buy these cards because it's the first one and that might be a big deal and so now i think uh, like I said, I have a better, I think a better, uh, grasp on like navigating the NFT bubble because I went through it with tops. I also like still feel exactly the same way. I think that my tops project 2020 cards are only going to be, uh, going up in value as I continue to do more projects, whether that's tops related, you know, now we talked a year ago, like now I'm on my third set with tops because in between project 70 and project 2020, I had a standalone 1951 set, which did moderately well um a little bit less than steve aoki and i think that um it's a pretty cool barometer for me like i didn't really know what to expect with like a standalone four wave uh digital drop like they had done with aoki or online exclusive or whatever um so yeah i mean i think that like it's interesting you know tops now is doing the tops project 70 which is uh kind of a similar format where it's a big group of artists and we're all doing cards that are part of this master set the differences are there's 51 artists instead of 20, which I think it's a little bit intimidating. It's just a lot to keep track of. Harder for me to really feel like I'm building this kind of intimate relationship or at least understanding of an artist's story when there's just so many different artists and so many different works every day. It's a little 
I don't know. It's just, it's a lot, man. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think uh, I still feel the same way. I, I'm planning on staying in the card industry for as long as the companies will, you know, be happy to work together. And even then, like maybe I'd go and do my own things. And I still think that like the original cards of some of these artists are great uh, keepsakes that like tie to a particular moment in time. And for me, like tops change, you know, it changed my business. My business went from $150,000 a year to $800,000 in 2020, almost exclusively because of tops split pretty evenly between royalties from card sales and then autograph sales of my own cards signing and selling to my fans. I also learned a lot there because I completely flooded the market last year with autos uh, because at first they were selling out so fast. And then I was having fans like accusing me of having bots on my site. They're like, I can't even get one. I'm like a true fan. So I just kept taking the addition size and just notching it up. Cause like, I don't care if like, I would rather everybody that wants to like give me money for an autograph card. I want them to be able to do that. I want them. I don't want them to feel like they're priced or not even priced out. Like they're, they just can't get it because of access. So that's been an interesting learning thing because now, you know, project 70 is around and like I'm doing autographs, but I'm doing very limited numbers. Like I did 10 Acuna autographs and like last year, those would have sold in a heartbeat. And this year, because I did so many autographs last year, uh, you know, they go to the super fans of Acuna or they go to big super fans of me, but it's not like collectors aren't coming in to be like, Oh, Blake auto Blake's dropping an auto. I got to buy it so I can flip it on eBay which I think is fine, but it's definitely a different dynamic, you know, with the sales within the hobby this year with tops than it was last year. Yeah, it is. It's really, it's really interesting how that all played out. I, I think that the, I think you saw obviously a huge bubble around tops project 2020 that was being fueled by flippers. It was being fueled by people who were simply looking to take a quick buck. There's a lot of those in the sports card market and you know, Topps Project 2020 is not the only project or type of card that's come along where we saw a crazy unsustainable rise followed by a, a sharp fall when the flippers stopped being able to sell to flippers. Because that's kind of what it became for a while was flippers selling to flippers. But I agree with a lot of your sentiment that over time, a lot of those cards may actually maintain and, and grow a lot in, in value eh? because you're, you are dealing with very artistic cards from a lot of really uh, you know, up and coming artists with a lot of great career ahead of them. Um, and so I think on the other side of the bubble, when things you know, really, really bottomed out, it became actually a better time to buy some of those cards again. And from a collecting, you know, from a collecting aspect, you, know, you, can never, you can never go wrong investing in what you love. Because even if the value goes up or down a bit, then you know, at least you can fall back on, hey, I really love this. Uh, this is really cool to look at. Yeah, and you know, I've, th I've thought about, um, we're, we're opening a new studio for sports card investor in the next uh, month or so. It's gonna be a lot larger. We're, we're like, uh, you know, 4Xing our, our space or more. And I've thought about putting a wall in that studio of all of the tops 20, Project 2020 cards. Um, you know, what a cool display that would be. And so um, we'll see if we're able to get that done or not. But, but that type of thing, those cards give you that type of opportunity. So um, I, I like the, I, I, still, I still very much like the long-term of them. Um, sure. Yeah. And it's interesting. I mean, I think that markets to be, especially like in the hobby, like you need both. You need the people that are passionate uh, about collecting the thing because they like the thing. And those people are probably going to be a little bit less price sensitive 
to fluctuations in price because they're not planning on flipping it or selling it down the road. Uh, and then I think you need the flippers too that are that are investing and speculating based on cards that they think are going to get hot because all of that together, I think, makes this uh, pretty magical industry that we're living in and working in. Yeah, it does. It absolutely does. It's It's fascinating to see the amount of activity, the amount of passion and, and the ups and downs that go along with it as you got a lot of people speculating and trying to make a buck and that's part of the game. So you gotta, you gotta learn how to navigate that and learn the lessons from it and move forward, which it sounds like you definitely have done. And so let's talk a little more about the NFT side. Um, this has been more just the, the recent few months that this stuff has really taken off, but but when you started to get clued into it, I, I think you said, you know, January was when you really started to see the potential of it. Um, what were the first moves you started to make? Well, I think that one of, there's a few problems in my mind with the industry in general. And part of it is that it's so fragmented. And so there's, mar there's so many different marketplaces. And to name a few, uh, Super Rare, Maker's Place, OpenSea, Rarible, Zora, Terra Virtua, Foundation, and so one of my first steps is I would I wanted to try all of them that I possibly could. And so I happened to have started on Super Rare, which is a curated platform, meaning that not anybody can just mint their own NFTs. You have to apply as an artist and then they get to select uh, whoever they want on the platform. I got lucky because I was recommended that I check out Super Rare like last June. And I didn't really start using it till January, but I had already set up an account and I was approved. And so I started just taking, uh, experimenting with old art from my archives of what I painted over the last six years. And I would throw something up and throw a description and some hashtags and throw it out there and see what happens. Um, and so I was just kind of in testing mode. And so I tested uh, four or five different platforms now. I have still seen like the most total volume of sales on Super Rare, but uh, the most, the single highest sale was on OpenSea, which I think is kind of interesting. Um, yeah, man, just getting my feet wet and just seeing what sold and like, and then when things start to sell, I'm like, okay, that does well. Let's, let's replicate that or enhance that. Uh, one thing that really, really excites me about NFTs is kind of the unlockable content and everything behind the JPEG that people are buying. And I know people get really hung up on that. And I have kind of these all, all separate thoughts of why that's a silly mindset to, to look at it as, and I, even though I used to do the same thing. Um, but I think the unlockable content is a huge opportunity for creating and maintaining long-term value for NFTs. Because right now we're seeing these ones that are being thrown out, they sell, but like there's nothing behind it. It's just, you get what you see. And my thinking is, you know, if we, if we look at like 12 or 18 months out from now, the NFTs that are still going to be relevant or the, or the new NFTs that are being created that are relevant and selling are gonna be ones that have a lot of underlying benefits, some of which we might not even understand yet of what's possible. But you know, a simple example is ticketing. So somebody that has my NFT could pull it up, they go to their unlockable content and maybe that has a QR code or some type of promo code or whatever, that could get them into either a digital event like a conference or a private Zoom call, for example, with the artist, or it could be in the physical world. So like I'm planning in December, there's Art Basel in Miami. I'm already, pl I'm planting seeds now where I'm having unlockable content that has future access that is gonna be tied to a, like an actual event at, a, at an art festival. And I'm really excited to kind of see where all that goes. And the reason that I mention all of that is because oftentimes these curated platforms like Super Rare, 
they're really nice looking cosmetically, like design wise, user flow, everything that it looks great, but functionality, they kind of limit, they, they put a lot of limits on you. So you can't have unlockable content on super rare right now. I think that's disappointing. So most of the new stuff I'm doing, I'm, tri I'm trying to use other platforms. Interesting. Yeah, that's, that's a fascinating extra wrinkle, you know, with NFTs. And you've seen that done in times, at times over the sports card world where there's certain sets of cards, boxes of cards where you could unlock, you know, some sort of in-person experience. Most of the time there though, it's kind of random. Like you don't know if you're going to get it or not. In this case, you're talking about it actually, you know, kind of comes with the purchase. If you own this asset, then you get the additional benefits that go along with it. Yeah, that's really fascinating interesting thing is that 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 can change too. the unlockable content the way we have it structured on my projects is it's basically pointing you to a secret website and then that website i can control and change anytime and so imagine if like all of a sudden uh the nba said hey anybody that you know comes to a uh mavericks game if you bring a luka Doncic uh rookie card and you just show it at the door you're going to get in for free if that happened the, the rookie card, like that market would go up, right? People would go search, you know, they want to buy those cards or people that are like, oh, I'm not even by the Maverick Stadium. So like, I'm going to sell my Luca card to somebody else because I can cash out. Like those are the type of situations that we'll be able to set up once NFTs are like really, really adopted and everybody has their NFT wallet, everybody has NFTs. If people are thinking about this the way that I am, like I'm going to be creating this asset class that's out there, all these digital assets, but then I'm also getting to dictate okay, what are the features and benefits of this digital asset? Because I would like to continuously be adding to the value of that NFT. And if I can do that correctly and communicate that to the fans, then I think those are going to continue to either maintain stable prices or potentially rise if we can you know, raise that utility. That's really interesting. So that could be a way to thwart if, if we are in a little bit of a uh, NFT bubble with some of these projects, and if you see prices come down on the other side, like you did with Topps Project 2020, if some of those Topps Project 2020 cards unlocked access to something, and if that something evolved over time, then those cards could very well hold or go up in their value on the secondary market if what it was unlocking had value to people. Um, and so, and, and by being able to evolve that over time, you're kind of evolving the value of the item and perhaps enhancing the value of the item down the road, therefore creating the creating an even stronger secondary market. Interesting. Yeah, you know, and honestly, this is the first I've heard of this. Like, this is the first time uh, I've heard a lot of, you know, I've talked to a lot of people with different NFT projects. I've talked to some people who have discussed doing NFT projects that unlock access to a real world event, but it's typically a singular event. I've not heard the concept of actually, maybe it's kind of almost a uh, opening to a whole bunch of stuff in the future. And by holding this, it's a little bit of a card that kind of gives you access to a whole bunch of things, the value of which you might not even know yet. That's pretty fascinating. Uh, I think that's a really interesting approach. Yeah, man, I think so. And like the tough part though is explaining to people that that's possible because like i said like there's so much value in these nfts or, t or so much possibility and potential that like we don't all understand even what those value those benefits are and and i agree like not a lot of people that i've talked to are thinking about unlockable content at all let alone unlockable content that evolves over time and so now like my challenge is like 
how do I educate NFT buyers to say, hey, my NFTs are different and here's why. And like, and the reality is I also need to get better at telling that story. And I'm also probably making a lot of assumptions on what people deem as valuable on that back end. And like, I need to go out and like test, okay, well, what does draw people in and what keeps them there? And like, what gets them to click? This is, it's why it's so fun to try this new, you know, be in a new industry because like nobody knows what's best yet. And so like, I might figure out best practices just by like trial and error. Yeah. That, and, and you have the ability to do it. I mean, it, it being a digital platform, it allows you that room to be able to uh, switch things up. As you said, if you're sending people to a website and you get the ability to edit the site and what it includes, really interesting. Yeah, how that could allow you to evolve this over time. Um, so I'm curious going back to, so that's obviously the future piece of what you're doing in NFTs that you're experimenting with right now and that you're gonna continue to figure out. But in terms of the lessons you've learned over the last few months where you where you were originally just kind of selling your art pieces in a digitized form, what have you learned there? Like, is it is it just a matter of digitizing your art or has there been certain things that have worked better or not as well in that space? Yeah, so in short, it is a, ma a matter of just digitizing your art. Um, one thing I learned pretty quickly is people tend to like big, big files because we, again, thinking to the future, how these NFTs are gonna be used and displayed, you know, it's not too far off that you could have a giant TV uh, in a hotel room that you walk into and you have an app. And as soon as you walk in, you can click a button and then like your art is displayed up like in your hotel room to make it feel like home. So people are already thinking about like the screen size. And so I would definitely say bigger, the as big as image possible that you can make, it's going to help be like people think that's valuable so far. Uh, I also learned that there is a lot of barriers to entry to buy an NFT. And it is very challenging to walk uh, an existing customer of mine, maybe from the TOPS project, through this process to get them to be able to actually like use their own money from their bank, transfer it into Ethereum, transfer it to me for, for a NFT, and then like being able to kind of use, like look at that NFT and kind of understand how to manage it. That's, that hurdle is, far too hard right now. And that's, I think, like kind of uh, stunting the growth of this market. Once that I think is the onboarding is solved, then I'm going to be able to bring a lot more of my existing fans, whether it's from Tops or any of my other artwork into the NFT space. In the last six weeks or eight weeks, I've definitely, uh, you know, I've done well selling some pieces, but almost every single piece that I've sold is somebody that was already in the crypto space and found me because of super rare or because of Twitter where I'm like tweeting about here's my new NFT and like they probably don't have any of my baseball cards but they're like oh I do know NFTs let me look at that so it's also interesting too like partnering with these athletes these guys have millions of followers it doesn't convert uh yet because the followers are not it's not overlapping with crypto people uh much you know I mean and, and it it's tough, man. It's a, it's really, we're fighting this uphill battle right now um, to like build community with people that, that want to be involved with whether it's myself or one of these athletes, but they just like, it's just the tech is just too hard right now. And I, yeah, I wish that wasn't the case, but that's, that's the reality. It is a challenge. Uh, it is definitely a challenge. Um, and I mean, getting into crypto in general is, uh, it's a little bit complicated and you have to do all the 
you know, all the uh, personal identification verification and, and there's limits and there's complexities. Um, there's obviously big players in the space, CoinBank or uh, Coinbase rather. Yeah, Coinbase, which, um, you know, they, they obviously are, are, you know, just recently went public and are um, well-funded and trying to make it easier and more accessible for everybody. That's certainly their mission. And so I think having a, a well-funded publicly traded company like that now, you know, pushing forward in that area over time is going to make things more simple. But at, at the moment, I agree. And it's foreign to a lot of people. And especially if you're not, if, 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 if you're not, if you haven't like kind of been in that area already and you're not cutting edge in the, in the technology and transferring funds into crypto and everything like that, trying to get into an NFT project can be very intimidating. Totally. And I agree with you. I think that Coinbase going public is a great indicator for the industry. I also think that OpenSea raised $23 million from Mark Cuban and uh, Andreessen Horowitz and, you know, some very notable VC money. And uh, Binance just today announced that they are making their own NFT marketplace, which is going to launch June 1st. So I think between those three kind of gorillas of the industry, uh, it is going to be really nice to see them build out something that is a little bit more uh, user-friendly for the average person. Because right now it's just, it's just for computer nerds and we need it to be in mass if it's really going to have the impact that. Right, right. Um, what do you think about the fact that there, there is no barrier to entry on the NFT creator side? Like how do, how do you differentiate and stand out in a marketplace where it's really anybody who wanted to create an NFT could do so? Sure. Great question. Um, so I'm, so OpenSea is a great example. Everybody can just make an open, you know, you can make an NFT. I think it's actually easier to create an NFT for sale than it is to buy someone else's NFT as far as setup goes. But I like that. I think that it sounds like what OpenSea is going to do from the creator side is they're going to give out more, they're going to build more robust tools for displaying your storefront. So that might be how you organize your collections or featured products or whatever. That's all I really want from OpenSea. Just give me the flexibility to build the storefront that I want. I will drive the traffic to it as best that I can. You know, if they're if if uh, they have traffic and can pass me some, that's great. But like, I'm not expecting OpenSea to do that. The reason that I like that every artist can just make their NFT is because any artist, anybody could just pick up a pencil and draw. And if you're creative, I encourage it. It's super fun. I think that. Um, I've had a lot of people reach out to me, artists saying, hey, I just made my first NFT. Will you support me and buy this? And I have bought a lot of them and that's why they keep coming back. It's like I keep feeding the pigeons and they, they never leave me alone now. Uh, but, you know, a lot of times I'll say, okay, well, you know, you want to sell your NFT. When you sell art in the real world, who do you sell it to? And I can't tell you how many times I get the answer. Oh, I've never sold art. I just like NFTs are just popular. Like I don't, I don't sell art. And I'm like, I can't really help you because... At the end of the day, like as much as I say, like, oh, you, you know, your audience isn't going to be crypto fans or, or crypto people like long term, it will be. And it will be your job as the creator to bring your own customers, just like it is my job to to find my own customers to buy my paintings. And the fact that anybody could put a painting up for sale, whether it's online or in the real world, that has no bearing on me. It's still up to me to go on my story and find the customer. So I, I feel the same way about that. 
It's true. That's absolutely true. And I think there's a, a lesson in there as well, which is don't worry too much about the competition and too much about what others are doing. Pay attention to what you have right ahead of you. I, I oftentimes when I'm talking to startup founders in the in the business world, um, you know, they'll be thinking about or obsessing about, well, this this app's doing this and this app's doing this and this app's doing this. And and oftentimes I'll say like, hey, stop. It doesn't matter what that app's doing, that app's doing, and that app's doing. What matters a lot more is what you're doing. What are you doing? And what are you doing next? Because if you play your cards right and you find your right audience that, you know, that believes in what you're doing and supports what you're doing, doesn't matter what the others are doing. That's not that that don't place your concern there. And I guess to the same degree, uh, if you think about it, I go to a lot of, you know, art fairs. They have art fairs all the time here in Atlanta, just like they do, uh, of course, in, you know, almost every city in the country. Um, and they're huge. I mean, you know, you'll go to these art fairs and they'll have have hundreds and hundreds of booths and vendors. And if you if you as the artist were you know, worried about what all of these other booths have going on, uh, that's going to be a losing proposition because there's so many of, uh, you know, others of them out there. If you instead worry about, hey, how am I going to get the people who love what I do, who believe in, who believe in my style and, you know, to my booth to buy my product, then you're really controlling your own destiny as, and, 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 and the rest of the people at that art fair kind of become irrelevant to you. Totally. Hundred percent, yeah, and I mean that goes for art as well. Like you said, like startups, anybody, just gotta stay in your own lane and find your. Customers. Yeah, interesting, and I could see there then the advantage that you were just saying. If if OpenSea or any of these digital uh, marketplaces gives you the advantage to really customize your storefront and kind of do it your own way, then the creators who are good at building their own audience, who are good at building a following, having uniqueness to what they're doing, then that gives them the opportunity to excel even more because it's, they've given you the customization options to kind of do things the way you want to do it. Yeah, exactly. And also just uh, whether it's people listening that are thinking I'm wrong or, or don't understand is that you actually can do that on OpenSea, but you have to basically like custom code it into your site. So you can like kind of white label their stuff. And I do, that's on my to-do list, but I wish that it was just all built into the platform, like uh, like a Shopify or something yeah. like that, to just move things around, organize my categories. You know, it'd be great out too if I could like change the price of things in mass rather than having to click into each one. Uh, things like that that are just right now technical barriers, but I think long term will all be solved. Do you get any cut of the secondary market when your NFTs are resold on OpenSea in the future? Sure. I do. And OpenSea is cool because uh, you can actually set that uh, for the collection. And so it's pretty industry standard is 10%. I see some people do higher, see some people do lower. I think 10 is a good starting place for artists. Uh, I did a collection of NFTs that I gave out for free to my email list subscribers. And for that, I put the second uh, sale, secondary market sales commission at 23%. It's my favorite number. And I figure I'm giving it to them for free, like, you know, We'll just see. It's a social experiment anyways. Uh, so it's like, yeah, definitely. Uh, and that's one of the coolest things about NFTs too, is that everything art is created and tracked all the way from the creator who like uploads it and mints it as an NFT to the first buyer, to the second buyer. And every time the buyers that buy happens, that kickback is paid back to the original creator. And that's just not something that happens in the traditional art world at all. 
And same thing with like the music world. I think that's going to be a good, uh, a cool tool for, for musicians. You know, there's so many applications for it. It's just, there's a ton of applications and that, and that kickback on the secondary market, as you said, that's huge because that gives you or any creator of anything, a ongoing revenue source that you currently don't have. And, and I mean, if you think about it in the sports card world, like right now, there's a problem that we have where Panini continues to manufacture their products and sell them at similar wholesale rates to their direct customers on the, on the wholesale side, similar rates to what they were selling them for three or four years ago. They're selling a box of Prism basketball wholesale for a couple hundred bucks. That is then getting marked up through, you know, uh, distribution chains. It's also then getting marked up intensively by the end, you know, retail store, whoever is getting those hobby products, especially if they're getting them direct from Panini, they have the ability to mark some of that stuff up like 10 X and then sell it, you know, sell it on, you know, at a much, much higher price point. Um, and of course you see the same thing happening with people walking where, you know, Walmart and target, they're not taking those types of markups. They're respecting the uh, average, you know, suggested manufacturer suggested retail price of blasters and that type of thing. So then what do you have in those situations is you got people swooping into the stores, buying the product the second it hits the shelves and then going and marking it up five, six, seven X and reselling it on eBay. Panini sees none of that. And granted, Panini's doing just fine. I mean, Panini's, you know, doing well in all of this, but I'm sure from their perspective, they would love to be able to take a cut of the secondary market. And if they were able to do so, it might take some of the price pressure off of, you know, the off of the primary market. And it, it allows some more creative strategies with pricing. And as you just said, a particularly creative strategy that you employed was was actually to give your product away. And to see, uh, you know, to see how that then played out with you simply being able to make returns off of the secondary market. So that's that's pretty fascinating as well. Well, yeah. And I also think like it really is good as far as aligning the interests of the buyer of the NFT and the creator of the NFT, because in the past with my art, I would want to make, you know, I meet you as a customer. We have a chalk. I make a painting for you. We go on your your own way. Like. I'm not motivated to like you to sell that painting. Um, it doesn't matter to me one way or the other, but now with NFTs, I'm like, okay, well I need to build this like long-term value where my old paintings start trading hands because the prices I sold them for are no longer like what my market price is. And it's, I think as soon as that happens, people can, you know, make money selling an NFT they bought for, you know, half an Ethereum and they're going to make like three Ethereum and clear like, you know, $10,000, like they're going to make that sale. And then I'll get a thousand bucks and be like, awesome. You know, that was for something I made so long ago. So it's just, it's exciting. And I think that now, like I finally, I finally have a good, like tangible reason to like care about that kind of stuff. I always have, but not because of the financial reasons, just because I want my customers to like make money. So I want my art to go up in price so somebody could sell my art, even if I don't get a piece of it, uh, just because of like the feel good. But now I'm like, actually compensated for it is it yeah that's really really cool uh this has been a fascinating conversation uh blake and i want to end on this where do you see all this going like if you look into the future five years from now ten years from now where do you think all this is going to be i think the nfts will play a part in in most of our lives it'll be our it'll be our tickets um it'll be like a bank account everybody has one 
uh, or like a or like a social media profile. If instead of looking at your Twitter, I could look at your NFT wallet and see common points of interest. You know, oh, we were both we both love tennis, or you know, this, that, and the other. So I, I think it's going to be a really cool tool um, that'll change a lot of things that are hard to predict now. But um, I would love to see mass adoption. I mean, obviously, I think that a lot of the card industry is going to be migrated over to digital, and it's kind of like I think about it when like film cameras came out or sorry, digital cameras came out. And, you know, I, I was really into photography with an old film camera. I like developing my own photos and stuff. I like the tactile. I like to hold stuff. Uh, so at first I'm like, I don't know about this digital camera thing, but now all my cameras are digital and, you know, I have an old camera, but I'm, I'm never going to like take a photo with film and develop it probably ever. <laughs> so I think that, uh, Cardboard's going to be like that. I think there's going to be some people that are just stuck on cardboard forever because they're that's what they're used to. But I th I think the most of the collectible scene is going to shift to this, uh, whether it's the asset is digital or it is their certificate of authenticity is an NFT that is paired with your LeBron James card. Uh, I would be very surprised if something like that doesn't become like the norm. Fascinating, fascinating days ahead. Indeed. Cannot wait. I cannot wait to see what the future holds. Same. Awesome. Blake, thanks for joining the conversation. It's been wonderful. Thank you for coming into the owner suite. Sweet. Absolutely. Thanks for having me. Thanks for joining us in the owner suite. Please click subscribe if you enjoyed the conversation and leave a review to help spread the word. Follow Jeff on Twitter and Instagram at Jeff352. And check out Jeff's growth agency, 352, at growwith352.com. See you next time in the owner suite.